Will you please rise as you're able for the reading of our gospel lesson today from the book of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment is the, of, in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Judy, for reading our lesson this morning, and Shelby for leading us, and Toy seems to be learning to pray, and uh, <laughs> always feel closer to God uh, in her prayers, and uh, it's a great joy to see you as we kind of transition now into summer. Our graduates will be graduating from Ravenwood and Brentwood on Saturday, I believe, and BA, Brentwood Academy, coming up on Monday. Uh, it is so good to be with you all in worship this morning. We, Sherry and I had the privilege of worshiping in Lawrenceville last week on Mother's Day with her family as we were returning from some time off in the week before uh, at Northbrook in Roswell where we heard our son preach. And that was a very special occasion. Uh, while we were away, uh, we also celebrated the graduation of our daughter, Haley, uh, who received her MS degree in clinical <laughs> mental health counseling. Now, as you can see, we were pretty happy about that, um, pretty proud, not only for what that piece of paper means to her, but frankly, what it means to us, too. Uh, for her, it's a job. For me, it's a pay raise, so thanks be to God. Uh, so, actually, while David Siblame was here talking about honoring the neighbor in your own family, we had the privilege of doing it in Georgia with ours, and so we were so grateful for that time. Many of you will be doing the same this weekend, and congratulations to all of you uh, on the diploma that your children, grandchildren will receive, and on the pay raise as well, if that includes you. I, I, don't, I don't often plan a series and then leave town, but that's kind of what happened a few weeks ago. We had planned this series on neighbors, and then with the graduation and family time, I asked Laura Brantley and David Sieblemay to begin the series. And so we're in our third week now of what I think is a, a really important series related to hospitality and evangelism. And Judy has read for us this text from the 22nd chapter of Matthew. You know this text. We refer to it typically as the great commandment. But what you may not be as aware of is the context in which Jesus spoke these words. And I want to talk about that for just a moment before we get into the text. Matthew chapter 22 is a part of a section that we often refer to as the controversy section in the ministry of Jesus. And this particular section in three chapters, beginning Matthew 21 through 23, is really unique to Matthew's gospel. It begins 
in Matthew 21 with the scene, you remember the Palm Sunday text with Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem where he comes on the back of a mule amidst branches of Hosanna and praise to a king's welcome. And when he gets into Midtown in the center of Jerusalem, where's the first place that he goes? It's to the temple. When he walks into the temple, he does a little renovating when he gets there. Because apparently, from Jesus' own words, they're turning his house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so he does a little renovation. He overturns the money changers and he cleanses the temple. As a result of that act, in the ensuing verses, in the rest of this section, this is an understatement. Jesus is probed <laughs> by the religious authorities with a series of difficult questions. And if you, you've read it, you under, they're, they're questioning his authority, who died and left you in charge. They're questioning this issue about paying taxes. And in the passage immediately before, Judy, what you read, the Sadducees are questioning Jesus concerning who will marry in heaven, which is kind of odd because Sadducees don't even believe in heaven. As I usually say, that's why they're so sad, you see? And so... <laughs> So, so it's a trick question to ask someone a question about something that you don't even believe in. And so if you smell a rat in this section, you're not wrong. The purpose of these questions is not theological conversation. It's not discourse. They're not asking in order to learn something they don't know. They're doing what we sometimes do. They're asking a question to prove a point. For example, when my wife occasionally, Sherry, says on Sunday, are you really going to wear that tie? Not a question. <laughs> That's a statement. Are you going to wear those shoes to the symphony? Not a question. That means we're not going to the symphony if you're wearing those shoes. It's a statement. It's the same kind of thing that happens with rhetoric, uh, rhetorical questions. When someone answers your question by saying, is the Pope Catholic? It's not really a question. It's an answer. It's a statement. I have a number of lawyer friends. Some of them are in the room today, and they tell me that in a court of law that you should never ask a question to which you do not know the answer. In this particular text, the lawyer, who was probably a scribe, a theological teacher, has no intention in his question of increasing his knowledge. He's asking the question to stump the rabbi. And yet the one thing to me that becomes crystal clear in this text is that it's probably not the best idea in the world to get into a theological tug of war with Jesus. I mean, you, you are likely not to win that battle. Personally, whenever somebody comes to me with a, a difficult question, and it happens a lot, with probing theological questions, I will often respond to your question with a question, like, why do you ask? And there's some doozies that have been asked in recent days. Is divorce ever the best solution? Is suffering a punishment for sin? 
Are other religions valid? And I'll usually respond by asking, well, why do you ask? And I don't do that because I'm dodging the issue. I don't do that because I'm buying time, although that's a good idea to do it. I do it because I've noticed that beneath these hypothetical questions, there's often a personal issue. And a proper response requires knowing the context of the question. In fact, I've come to the point where I believe that the motive of the question is as important as the question itself. And oftentimes what's needed is not a cliche or a maxim, but some pastoral care. And too often, even in the clergy, we're all too willing to give a nice fill-in-the-blank equation to a pastoral situation. Matthew kind of gives away the motive behind this question, and he does it right from the beginning, doesn't he? In verse 35, the scribe who's asking this question is asking it why? In order to test Jesus. Now, the word test is an important word because in the Greek language, it's pronounced perazzo, which means literally to tempt, to trick, or to deceive. In other words, this isn't really a question. He's trying to one-up Jesus. It's a theological chess match. He's trying to discredit and to damage his reputation in front of the other Pharisees who are in the temple, perazzo. By the way, it's very interesting to me that the word perazzo is used in Matthew's gospel in reference to two entities, the Pharisees and the devil. And I hate to say it, but sometimes there's a correlation Sometimes the devil gets involved in the work of the church, terrazzo. And so don't look now, but this is more than a religious debate. It's actually a confrontation between two perspectives. It's a clash between two kingdoms. And here's the question. It's a good question. Teacher asked the scribe, which command in the law is the most important. In other words, what is the crux of the issue for Jews? What is the essence? What, 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 is, what is the core of biblical religion? And actually, at this point, for Jesus, there's a lot of ways to go wrong in response to this question. Because in the first century, for a devout Jew, the whole law, the entire law, was equally binding, they believed, and so you don't really get to pick and choose. It was believed that according to the law of Moses, when you get involved in the technical parts of it, that there are actually 613 commands in the Torah. 248 of them are positive. The number 248 corresponds to the number of body parts that it was believed that were a part of the human anatomy. And 365 negative commands that also corresponded to the number of days in the year. And so to that crowd, this question, if Jesus answers it in the wrong way, it's going to sound a little presumptuous to start ranking and evaluating the law and the commandments. And it's a setup, perazzo. Now, most of the time when you read in the Gospels, 
when Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question, as we were saying a moment ago. This is rabbinical teaching. This is what pastors do. In fact, my daughter tells me this is a part of therapy as well. It's dialogical teaching. You respond to the question with a question. That's the typical rabbinical way of teaching, but that's not what Jesus does in this text. In fact, it may be one of the few times that Jesus actually gives a straight and direct answer to the question. Which is the greatest? And he quotes the scripture. He goes to the tradition. Deuteronomy 6.5, what's called the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith. Every good Jew every morning began with those words on her lips. And at night, last words on his lips. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And then he adds this word from Leviticus 19.18. So he doesn't just give one answer, he gives two. A second, he says, is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To say that a second is like it is to say it's the same as. In other words, he's saying that loving God and loving neighbor, it's inseparable. You can't differentiate the two. Indeed, the implicit point is that the clearest evidence of your love for God is the way that you love the person sitting next to you. The clearest evidence of your testimony of our confession of our love for God is in our treatment of the neighbor. Now, at this point, I think it's really, really critical to know that in the Old Testament, in those days, the notion of neighbor was thought to mean your fellow Israelite. In other words, neighbor was the person in your group, in your kinfolk, in your tribe, in your ethnic group. But what Jesus is doing, and it's pretty radical, is he's expanding the concept of neighbor. Jesus will not put a fence around the word neighbor. You need some scripture for that? I have it. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see it, that in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 about the centrality of love, he indicates that your neighbor is not limited to your friend, your subdivision, your group, your family, or your tribe. He says that your neighbor actually includes your opponent, your adversary. Oh, no. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I'm going to preach a series of sermons in July called Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said, and this is one of them. This is hard to do. I wish he hadn't said it sometimes. It's interesting that that word enemy, you see italicized, you know what it means in the Greek, ektros? It means one who is openly hostile to you. It means somebody who's animated by a deep sense of hatred who means you harm. And Jesus is saying, love him, her. He's expanding the concept of neighbor. And then he has the audacity to tie it to our spiritual identity. You do this 
so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The implicit point is, if I'm not doing that, perhaps I'm not effectively being a child of God. I've thought about this all week, and what it comes down to is this. Here's the take home. I don't get to choose who my neighbor is, and neither do you. Furthermore, the word for love here is not filial love. It's not affection. It's not a feel-good love. It's agape. It means unconditional. That's about commitment. I don't know if you've ever discovered this or not, but I've discovered that you don't have to like somebody in order to love them. There's some folks in the room maybe you don't necessarily jihaw with. I'm not sure that my wife always likes me, but she loves me. You don't have to like someone to love them. W.H. Auden once said it like this, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) I love, don't wait. Don't wait until your motives are completely pure to love. I was invited to a meeting three or four weeks ago at Belmont University. It was a small group of religious leaders who were invited to come together to have dialogue with Governor Sam Brownback. Do you know him? The former two-term governor of Kansas, who is today the ambassador for religious freedom. He's traveling the world. He's trying to draw attention to places in the world where religious minorities are marginalized and persecuted. And there are many places where it is very, very dangerous to be a person of faith. Eighty percent of those being persecuted happen to be Christians, which is the rationale gives us the impetus for our Middle East initiative along with our South Africa initiative. Uh, A few of us will be returning to Beirut in June for a conference related to this specific concern. Governor Brownback in this meeting also told us that uh, with all of this persecution that there are actually a million Muslims in China who are in concentration camps because they're Muslim. And he said what's happening is the Chinese government has facial recognition cameras attached near the mosques and the churches, and as they're going in to worship their God, that camera captures their identity and suddenly their credit rating goes down and they're becoming marginalized at work and they can no longer provide for their families. That's the world we live in. We also discussed the situation that we've been praying about in recent days in Sri Lanka, the Easter Sunday event where a man with a knapsack came in with a bomb and detonated it during Easter worship, hundreds of people killed and injured. And Governor Brownback said, though the United Nations agree on paper about religious freedom, the truth is very few nations actually practice it. And then he said something that I'll never forget, and I tell you this for this statement. He said, I've come to the conclusion that tolerance will never solve this problem. It's going to take more than that. It's going to take love. That's what he said. It's going to take love, agape. It's going to take respect. And I thought to myself, oh, there ought to be a scripture for that. And then I remembered 1 John 4. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then he goes on, those who say, I love God and hate brother or sister, they're liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot possibly love God whom they have not seen. And then he finishes, the commandment we have from God is this, those who love God must love their neighbor. And I don't get to choose. That's the essence. That's a straight answer to a trick question. That divine revelation hangs on two commands. We saw it recently in a boy named Kendrick Castillo. Two weeks ago, this kid, 18 years of age, who would be graduating tomorrow if he were alive, sitting in a British literature class in a charter school as the active shooter comes through the door into the classroom, this young man lunged at him, pinned him to the ground for a moment, took the bullet, giving the other classmates time to get under their desks and to flee for safety. There were eight students who were injured. There was only one who was killed. It was Kendrick. He'd be graduating tomorrow. His father, John, said at his funeral, he was the best kid in the world. I wish he had gone and hit himself, but that's not my boy's character. My son's character is about loving people and protecting his classmates. Greater love hath no man than a young student who would lay down his life for his classmates. We who are a part of the body of Christ don't decide on the identity of our neighbor. We're never commanded to agree (laughs) with our neighbor, but simply to love our neighbor as ourselves. I'll be honest with you. I let me get away with things I would never let you get away with. But we cannot be children of God unless and until we love our neighbor as ourselves. But when we do, it becomes the clearest evidence to the world of our love for God who first loved us. And the key is it it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be as simple as a cup of cold water. It can be as simple as a tuition paid for a kid in a settlement in Howick, South Africa. It can be as easy as a hot meal for a hungry soul or a tender shoulder to lean on for one who's hurting. It can be as easy this afternoon as writing a note on your server's bill of encouragement. It isn't hard, but it has to be intentional. It takes practice. In the end of this text, I I don't think Jesus' response to this trick question was necessarily new. I think others probably said it and would have agreed with it, but there was something new about Jesus' response as opposed to the religious leaders. You know what it was? Jesus didn't just preach it. 
That's the difference. He practiced it. He didn't just say it. He actually did it. And when you do it, it will change somebody's world. Namely, yours. Mine. Not just the person who receives it. It'll change the world of the person who gives it. And more than that, it will bring glory to the one who has loved us and given his life for us. That's a straight answer to a trick question. In Jesus' name, amen.